Okay, I'm going to attempt to explain what I think happened in 2000, 2008 when the stock market crashed from the real estate bubble. And just a small caveat here, I have no idea how this stuff works, at least historically, traditionally, but I wanna be able to say something about it in the book and I, I've just been just massively ignorant of the, the kind of like the real mechanisms of finance uh, for most of my adult life. <laughs> so <laughs> I'll do my best. Uh, I, it's actually not that difficult to understand when you get the idea of lending something to someone else and saying, you have to pay me back. But since you couldn't buy it and I had to buy it for you, you have to pay me back with interest. It's like at the end of the day, if there's no lending and no, uh, there's one more catch. If the value of the, so I'm getting ahead of myself, but let's just stick with the core picture. If there's no, I have money and you don't, so I'm gonna lend you something and then you have to pay me back. If that doesn't happen, then nothing else happens, right? So I've been able to figure that out. Ah, uh, Lord, okay. So I'm sitting here and I just potted a plant and I have this beautiful new um, clay pot. And so I'm gonna use that as an example. So suppose for whatever reason, so this is how I think what happened in 2007, 2008 with the real estate crash that basically brought down, it almost brought down the entire banking system in the United States. Uh, okay, so instead of a house, which is what that was based on, buying a house, lending a house, lending money for home buyers to become homeowners, right? I'll just start with this clay pot, flower pot. Uh, suppose for whatever reason, somebody makes clay pots and they're very beautiful and uh, people start wanting them. There's a big movement on Reddit or YouTube or wherever to start planting um, a lot. And the look of the pot itself becomes a variable or a factor in the desirability of this product, right? So, Various companies or individuals, it doesn't really matter. People are actually making clay flower pots, right? Big ones, small ones. And there's, there, there's uh, in this particular environment, they start becoming in high demand. Lots of people want to buy them so I can, I can up the price. Why can I up the price? Because if two people want to, this is another thing that you have, like with finance, you always have to trace it back to what exactly is going on. Okay, like, so suppose somebody says, like, comes and, and, and says to the person who makes the pot, like, I want to buy the pot. Okay, then they sell. Well, how much is the pot worth? Well, how much time, materials, and so on? It's like, okay, I'll, buy, I'll sell this pot to you for $50. So then suppose two people come to you and say, like, I want to buy this pot. And you say, okay, fine, the price is $50. And, and somebody says, well, we can't both have it. So there's this idea of scarcity, right? Like, there's only one pot. That's demand. Uh, that's supply rather. 
So uh, the one person has more money and says, look, I'll give you $60 for it, not 50. So what am I gonna do? I'm gonna sell it for 60. So the price starts going up because of demand. So let's say that at this particular moment, uh, at this, you know, in this particular time in history, like in this imaginary, you know, Earth 2 scenario, uh, I, these, these clay pots are selling for $100 a piece. That's just what people are, you know, that's, that's, that's how much people are willing to pay for them. So suppose you want desperately to impress your boyfriend or your girlfriend or whomever, your cousin, or whatever. You def desperately want one of these clay pots, right? But you don't have $100. So I happen to, uh, you know, have, like say I have $10,000 in the bank. Who am I? I I'm Eric Larson, LLC. Like, let's just say I'm a lender. Uh, and I just kind of lending out for, you know, to help people instead of having, you know, being homeowners and making their dreams come true by owning their own home. Uh, you know, I'm just helping in a smaller way with my much limited resources, helping people to buy their favorite clay flower pot and put their favorite, you know, flower in it. And I can make, you know, people's dreams happen that way. But I've got like $10,000 of capital in the bank. But you don't have any. So you come and you say, look, will you lend me uh, $100 so I can buy the flower pot? And I say, yeah, of course. Uh, and so I lend you the money, but I lend it to you. Uh, say, let's say you got to pay me back 110 in a year. And so... There's interest, right? Uh, and so, okay, yeah, that's fine. Here's $100, buy the pot, and then you make monthly payments for me, at whatever that is, yeah. you know, 10% interest, right? And, um, and then we're square, right? At the end of the year, you've paid back your principal and you've paid me back the, um, the interest. And so that's our deal, we sign a contract, you get the pot, you make your initial payment and we're on our way. Well, suppose like it's, I'm making so much money, uh, you know, as just a main street, you know, I'm right now we're in the model of a main street bank. I'm making so much money lending people money to buy pots. I don't make the pots. I just give people money who don't have money to get the pots, but everybody needs, everybody wants one. So I'm just making so much money that I start saying, look, uh, you don't even have to pay me for the first three months because I've got enough capital. Now I've got, you know, $20,000 in the bank or something because I'm making profit on lending money. So I'm pretty cash rich. And so I have, I have an ability to make even more money because I can forego an interest payment for the first, say, three months because I, you know, I have enough money to pay Remember, I'm paying the person who actually made the pot. Everybody's getting paid. Somebody actually, it starts with somebody actually made the, you know, there's a lumber supplier, there's people who have drywall, there's, you know, there's land that somebody had to buy the land to build, you know, this is a how, this isn't the clay pot, I switched scenarios, but for the clay pot, there's materials, maybe, you know, whoever, whoever's doing this, somebody's making these, but it's not me, but I've got to pay somebody myself, right? So I, I gave that $100, I gave you, I gave the person buying the pot a hundred dollars and then 
um, they were able to buy the pot. But, you know, I had to buy in order for this, you know, in order for this to work. Um, I have to be able to um, own the pot. Right. And so I had to pay somebody, which was the original creator of the, the pot. So, OK, so this goes and then I so and I give interest free loans and um, people who kind of don't even have really they're kind of a credit risk. But um, I figure I'm making so much money. I can kind of afford to take a little bit more risk on doling out cash to buy clay pots. So I'm saying, and also I can make more money if I take slightly more risk with the, with the lender, with the borrower. So I'll say, yeah, you don't pay me anything for three months and then you pay me 20% interest for the next nine. So then I make whatever the heck that is, $18 or whatever. Uh, Yeah. Something like that. Um, And so I'm making more and more money by taking slightly more risk, but I'm still just doing interest stuff. But at some point, Eric Larson LLC, the mainstream lender, making people's dreams happen with flower pots, remember. At some point, I decide, look, I've got $50,000 in the bank now, and I want to turn that into $500,000, and I'm going to have to be, there's going to have to be, and there's only so many clay flower pots that are going to get made per month, right, on Earth 2 here. Um, and so I want to see if I can actually magnify my earnings. And so I create not Eric Larson LLC, Main Street Eric Larson lender. I create Eric Larson Quant, right, which is the high risk, uh, sort of off the books investment vehicle for Eric Larson LLC, which I wholly own. So I own Eric Larson Quant. But what is Eric Larson Quant? Eric Larson Quant is full of a bunch of quants or math PhDs who figure out different ways to make what's called a derivative out of an initial investment. So I give them of the $50,000, I give them an outlay of like, you know, 20 grand or something. And I say, do whatever you want with this. And what they say is, uh, so what they do is they create a derivative, which means an abstraction. Uh, it's, but, it, but by the way, all of this is still tied to the person who made the clay pot. What else could it be tied to? Everything else is just money flowing from one you know, person to another, right? Um, so they make something called um, a clay pot backed security or a CPBS or a collateralized clay pot debt obligation. They make one of these, right? And so what is a clay pot backed security? It is basically nothing. It is a mathematical formula that has a price attached to it that is based on the presumed increase in value or appreciation of the clay pots. Now, why are the clay pots appreciating? Because more and more people want to buy them. So instead of two people showing up, now I have three people showing up saying, I want to buy this clay pot. So there's not enough supply and there's ballooning demand. And so the price keeps going up. Now, I over at Eric Larson Quant, they start looking at their, their, 
expert analysts and PhD mathematicians are looking at the, the value of a sale of one unit of clay pot and seeing it went from 100 to 120 and it doesn't seem to be going down and no one anywhere seems to show a lack of interest in buying clay pots. It's all of a sudden there's just plants. There are house plants and flowers in everyone's apartment, bungalow, house, trailer park, you know, vehicle, office space, everywhere. There's just, you know, and so the, there's just a ballooning, never-ending demand. Okay. And so on the basis of that, I am able to take my clay pot backed security and sell it all over the world on the promise that it's going to keep going up. And one of the things I can do is I can say, look, this is not just a derivative or an abstraction. That's not based in real value. It's tied to actual clay pots that are produced in the United States of America. Real clay pots, right? Like that's what this is all tied to. And I can show you how they keep going up and up and up with no end in sight. And I can show you mathematical models of this projected into the future for at least the next three years, maybe four, at which time the value of those derivatives tied to the fundamental value of the original product, right, will be, you know, 10x, 100x, right? So now I've created an international market for these clay pot backed securities and um, people are buying them already at hugely inflated prices because if the price is going to go up, let's say the real value is, you know, $3 a share, but you're buying them at 30. But if you think it's going to 90, you hardly care that you had to buy in at 30, right? So I sell them to, you know, let's say Iceland, the, the central bank of Iceland buys millions of dollars of clay pot backed securities, right? And the bank on paper, you know, looks in, on their spreadsheet, they look and, and they see that six months later, the value has, you know, of these have gone up 30 or 40%. And so their initial outlay of, you know, $10 million is now uh, $27 million. So they have a $17 million profit on paper. And so what they do is they say, they go back to the physical world and they say, I'm going to make a clay pot factory in Reykjavik, right? So they take the money that they have, the investment money, and they, they actually start making things in the real world with that money, right? And so what do they do? They give it to a clay pot developer who farms it out to people who make, who mine the pots, who manufacture the pots, who design the pot, you know, you have to pay the designers. And then of course you have, you know, the cost of the warehousing of the pots and so on. And so all those people have to get, they get, they get paid on the, the money that I've made, the paper money that I've made from the clay pot back securities. Right. And so now all of a sudden there's a huge, you know, aircraft hangar size clay pot facility in Reykjavik, Iceland. Right. And so at some, so here, so here's how the whole thing comes to an end, <laughs> ignominiously, horrifically, actually. 
So now the entire world is leveraged against the increasing value of the derivative or the security that's tied to the actual value of the clay pots and the original loans. But so I'm the, I'm the first loan. I'm the first chain, Eric Larson LLC. And so what I notice is uh, a lot of people, you know, people suddenly are losing interest in clay pots. They're going to, um, you know, they're starting to buy paintings. There's less demand. People who have the clay pots suddenly decide that, um, you know, they, they want to sell them for something else, but they can't sell them for what they paid for them. So they, they have this loan for me, you know, loan to Eric Larson LLC, but now they discover they can't, um, they can't, they, they don't want to make their payments or they can't make their payments. Right. So let's suppose that, um, you know, they, they bought the clay pot with a three month, uh, period. <laughs> They're what's called subprime clay pot borrowers. And the reason they're subprime is, is that their credit rating wasn't really good. In other words, they don't really pay back their, their debts on paper or historically, but nonetheless, because I was making so much money, I took that extra risk. Eric Larson LLC did. And so I said like, you don't have to pay for the three months. Well, uh, when they, when they got the balloon payment that came right uh, at, at month uh, four, they got a big, big payment that's due back to Eric Larson LLC, they went, oh yeah, actually I can't afford that. Well, I lost my job. I got, I have a pay cut. We had another child. Uh, my mom is sick. We're moving to Australia, whatever it is, they all of a sudden, um, they can't, uh, make the payment. And since there's less demand, they can't sell the damn pot. So they just walk away. What happens? Well, there's no debtor's prison. Yeah. I just have people that suddenly they're not when I'm calling in the, you know, for the terms of the loan, they're just not, they're not, they're, I'm getting less and less revenue. So I realize, Oh shit. And I still all I'm, I'm the first lender, but I actually have to, I bought all the pots to be able to do this. So I'm still having to pay money, right? I'm still actually myself in debt. Well, I mean, if I bought a hundred, you know, if I bought, uh, you know, a hundred pots at a hundred dollars, then what is that? $10,000. So I'm in debt. You know, I'm still in the original, well, however many pots I bought, I'm in debt that amount. Um, and so suddenly I go to pay back the pot producers, right? The clay pot, flower pot producers. So I've got to make my payments on the, the my initial investment. And I realized that I've got all my money <laughs> tied up in Eric Lawson Quant. And so I actually don't have cash in the bank anymore to, uh, to make my payments. Like I actually don't have the money in the bank to make the payments. And the people who are supposed to be paying me are starting to flock, are starting to flee the scene. And so when I go to Eric Larson Quant, I like say like, give me the, you know, sell back the shares and give me the profit. But the problem is, is that now, the models that used to say that it was making all this money, it's looking at the initial investment and the model saying now, like actually all these are going to start going down. And so when everybody who bought these realizes that they're starting to go down, they all start selling them off because they're suddenly it's not such a good deal, but they're all in debt as well because they bought a clay pot factory in Reykjavik, Iceland. Everybody now is in debt. Everybody owes original makers of things but suddenly, 
the value, which wasn't really, <laughs> there wasn't actually, the value was based on a future bet that never came in, right? So there's actually no value there. There's no additional value there to pay millions and millions of additional dollars for clay pot factories and clay pot beauty clinics and, you know, whatever. The, there was an airline called Clay Flower Pot Air. You know, somebody bought that in Indonesia. That real planes were made and they paid, you know, they paid all. It's like suddenly nobody has any money because when you go to sell the shares, they're not worth <laughs> they're not worth what you paid. So everybody's in debt. So there's no money in Eric Larson Quant. In fact, they're tanking, but they had all my investment. And so I don't have enough money. Like I gave my money to Eric Larson Quant. And so Eric Larson LLC only has, you know, I only have enough money to keep, barely keep my doors alive. So I'm faced with this choice. I either go bankrupt paying back you know, what I actually owe as, a, as, the, as, the lend, as the first lender, I go bankrupt or I go to someone else that has money. <laughs> Who else has money? If, all, if the banks were all collectively playing this game and the infection, the cancerous, poisonous debt is all over now everywhere and is basically tied to all this other real stuff in the world, and suddenly, by the way, there's no demand for any of this stuff because, oh, by the way, the Fed increased the interest rate a couple of years ago and there's ominous signs that things, it's going to be a lot, you know, worse environment for anyone. In other words, it's going to cost me a lot more to, if I want to go and buy a bunch of pots as some other person, it's going to cost me more because suddenly the interest rate is now 30%, right? Because the interest rate is going to be pegged to the, uh, Fed rate, right? So like all of a sudden everybody goes, man, I don't, you know what? I woke up one morning and I decided I don't want any flower pots. I want to just buy eggs and milk. I don't want this stuff anymore. I'm not going to buy it. So now there's no demand. So now when somebody comes to buy the clay flower pot, there's only one person. And so when I say, yeah, it's $130 now, they say, yeah, no, I don't think so. I'm not going to spend that. And since I know no one else is going to show up for the next month, I just sell it for 60 bucks because I got to get something for it. Whoa, boy. Now that's called a bubble collapsing. And that's what happened in 2008. That's exactly what happened, give or take some more you know, professional details. Uh, I mean, there's, there, there, there's a slight difference between collateralized debt obligations and mortgage-backed securities. And there's a slight, you know, but that's basically what happened. And so what the only, there was no way out. Basically the banks don't have the money. They just don't have it. And by the way, all your money is in the bank. <laughs> what is a bank, right? So like, uh, like, right. Well, if the bank, if you know, if your credit card isn't going to work, right? Like think about what happens if the banks don't have any money, right? Uh, yeah. Like, uh, you know, you go to the Walmart and you can't buy your cookies. Why? Because your money's in the bank and there's no money in the bank. All of a sudden they invested it and now it's gone. Uh, and so the banks did the only thing, Eric Larson LLC does the only thing that it can is go to a bigger uh, <laughs> LLC, like, you know, somebody with more, so, so another bank, you know, Joe Blow LLC that has more money. But it turns out Joe Blow is mixed up in the mess as well. They can't afford to give me a loan. So I have nothing to do but go to the one place where you can get money, which is the government, and they can just print it. 
That's, that's the one thing the government does. And I, this is a, not a political point, by the way. I'm saying that I can't print money. It's called counterfeiting and I go to jail. Eric Larson LLC cannot make more money. I think, actually think there's an interesting discussion about that itself. And I, don't, I think it's out of my depth. But for the one-on-one version of this is I can't really make money. Right. I don't, I, I, it's illegal. I'm not the government. I don't have uh, the ability. I don't control the currency. I use the currency, but I don't control it like the federal, like the treasury and the federal exchange. So uh, the only thing I can do at this point is go, <laughs> go massively out of, go, go into chapter 11 big time with huge, huge debts to all these people, right? Or uh, I can try to get money from a bigger Joe Blow LLC, which just doesn't work. Or I can go to the federal government in which I incorporated Eric Larson LLC. And I can say, can you please, um, you have reserves, a federal reserve and treasury and so on. That you, the, I, can say, I can say you have reserves or if you're, if you're out of money, you have a printing press. <laughs> you can make more money. So... That's what happened. The banks got all the Eric Larson LLCs and the Joe Blow LLCs uh, got bailed out by the government who gave them, you know, gave massive, massive infusions of cash that were to be stipulated to be used in certain ways, not for high risk investments. And um, Lehman Brothers, for instance, I think it was Lehman Brothers. That's the one fact you really should know when you tell the story. Lehman Brothers went uh, completely under. So some banks actually weren't too big to fail. They were the sort of sacrificial lambs. And then the other, the other banks um, who, in exchange uh, with the federal government, bailed them out were, you know, were put under kind of like disciplinary actions to basically get the debt handled off the books, and then um, I think it was Sarbanes-Oxley to not engage in Eric Larson quant activities at that level. So one of the things is, how much money can I give Eric Larson LLC? How much money can I give Eric Larson quant? How much of my savings can I give over to high-risk investment? And so I, so one of the... Um, the, 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 the stipulations or the fixes that came out of the real estate bubble crash was you've got to have more money in the bank to cover losses if something goes wrong. So if I could only give them $500 and I have 50,000 in the bank or a thousand and I'm, I have 50,000 in the bank, right? That I'm, I'm kind of hedging, like I'm not going, I have a, a certain protection against really massive losses, right? Because I'm not really leveraging a huge amount of my initial, uh, my initial, uh, um, savings. So all of that happened. And, um, the, uh, <laughs> the, the, well, this is a separate issue, but now the Eric Larson LLCs of the world for the new clay pot, clay, you know, flower pot investment schemes, those LLCs, uh, they're actually bigger now. Like, so somehow in the wake of all this, the banks, the, the original investors got much larger. Uh, and um, the story continues kind of of how this can happen. Um, 
And I think that's about like, frankly, that's pretty much the, the limit of my understanding of, of how that happened. The part about it, I'll say this really quickly because I try to keep these to 30 minutes, but the part about it that's of interest to me is um, how there's something called value at risk, which is a the model that they use to uh, compute whether uh, a particular uh, security is uh, high risk or not, or it could become toxic. And the, v- the value at risk models basically look at a slice of historical data and then they extrapolate um, and they try, to, they try to pin between, basically, uh, it's, it's, you know, it's really a bell curve or a standard deviation model. They try to say, how rare is it that an extreme event like everyone's going to stop buying flower pots is going to happen. And if that's past a certain, if that's a low enough number, the chance of a rare, you know, non-flower pot buying climate, then they continue, that VAR uh, result is going to basically give confidence to people to buy those with the expectation that they can't become toxic or they can't, they're not going to plummet in price. Right. So they, so, you know, forecasting ahead. And, and so what's funny is like those models really, in a sense, it was really kind of, I mean, long-term capital management did this in 1998 before we had, before we had like really, really powerful computing resources. And so, you know, it's not, there's no sufficient condition that, that uh, this has much to do with the big data era, but uh, those models were becoming very, by 2007, 2008, were extremely sophisticated um, and were taking account of a huge number of, of, of features in the historical data to try to make a really accurate extrapolation. The problem is, is that extreme events happen all the time. And since you can't predict the future, they're not even really extreme. It's called life. It's called stuff happens. People, for all kinds of reasons, people stop uh, behaving one way in a market and start behaving another way. And, you know, things happen. Maybe there's, you know, maybe there's a war. Who knows? Like there are all kinds of externalities and exogenous events that make extreme events not really extreme. They're actually only extreme relative to the historical slice of data that you're using to perform, you know, the whatever multivariate analysis that you're performing. And so I thought that was really interesting how people had such confidence in those models. And it turns out, by the way, when they did the due diligence, the postmortem on all this, it turns out that like the value at risk models didn't look at a large enough slice of historical data. So if you go back, you see extreme events, right? But it, it tur- you know, they were going back, I don't know how many years they were going back, um, Niall Ferguson writes about this in, in the, um, the ascent of money. Um, they were going back several years, but they actually needed to go back something like 70 years for which it's not possible to get that rich, rich feature set from, you know, we don't have like that. It was really impossible to do that, but it turns out that like we actually, it could have been predicted or brought into at least this. So says Ferguson. I haven't really, this is, I'm skeptical of this claim, but so says he that um, they could have in fact, forecasted within a standard deviation or in other words said, Hey, 
this extreme event is actually not extreme. It actually could happen and we're on the cusp of it if it had they extended the amount of historical data way, way back. But as a practical matter, they can't do that. They couldn't do that. And they didn't think of it anyway. But even if they did think of it, the data wouldn't have been adequate decade by decade to actually extract the rich information that they needed. And so um, that entire game, right, actually of the value at risk is really, it's really snake oil, right? It's actually just alchemy. Like it's not really, (laughs) it's theater basically, um, and so I think that's an interesting, that's an interesting piece of it. The other thing that I think is interesting is that the centralizing move of the 21st century is well displayed in what happened, what transpired after the real estate bubble with the banks themselves, which are, who are now, which are now larger. So the centralizing trend brought on by datafication networks, and there's a whole story to be told, told here, reproduces itself even with policy after the collapse that was intended to prevent this kind of centralizing large trend from happening. It, it happened anyway. The banks are all bigger now. Uh, that's the, one of the strange, strange things about this in the wake of, the, uh, of the, the remedy. The remedy actually created a more centralized system. And so uh, the, I think those are the two takeaway points.